Insane. Inside the prison, I was taken to a room in ward number three. There were already four young occupants in the cell. We shared with each other our own stories of how we got drawn into the pro-democracy movement and how we got picked up, tortured and thrown into jail. That night, the five of us barely had enough floor space to sleep. We made do with what we had, not to mention the toilet pan. The only piece of furnishing inside our cell was stinking up the place. The next morning, I was taken to an office within the prison. There, I saw Mamutu and Mawanda. As we were not allowed to speak, we gave each other a smile and a nod. Moments later, the three of us were taken to a building called the Special Ward. As the sign at the entrance read, Juvenile Ward, I figured the facility used to house underage inmates. I was placed in cell number one. Mamutu and Mawanda were given cell number six and eight respectively. Other cells were already occupied before we arrived. The meals offered at the special ward were decent by prison standards. I learned that the ward was reserved for those prisoners considered politically significant. Little did I know at the time that Mamutu, Mawinta and I would be arrested and detained together again. Seven years later, in May 1996, it must have been my collective past life karma that brought the three of us such similar fate. After a week of my stay in so-called special ward, I was taken to ward number two. I was not yet allowed to receive visitors or get in touch with my family. Technically, I had not been sentenced to prison. I was held under Article 10A of the State Protection Law. Hence, I was just a detainee, not a prisoner. The Article 10A detainees were allowed to receive a package from family once every two weeks. It had to be pre-approved by an intelligence officer assigned to the prison. As my family had not been informed of my whereabouts, there was no package for me to look forward to. I had arrived here in prison with nothing but the clothes on my back, the very same outfit I had been wearing since 20th July 1989. A fellow political prisoner who had been there longer kindly gave me a blanket. Some thoughtful inmates asked their family members to let my family know where I was being held. When I arrived in ward number two, Uwin Din, the NLD co-founder, former chief editor of Handawadi News, and Dopeyagale Aung's Red Prince were there. Danzor and Niniu, the NLD youth members framed for bombing an oil refinery in early July, were also there. Uwin Din, Handawadi, would later be moved to cell number 8 in the special ward. Somehow, I did not get to stay in the same ward for long. I was moved from ward to ward. I was placed in ward number 3, ward number 5. When I arrived in ward number 5, Dr. Tim Yuin, a surgeon and Don Dosu's personal physician, was there. Then I was placed back in ward number 2. The second time I arrived, all 60 cells of ward number 2 were occupied and even overcrowded. The rules call for each dead rules inmate to be placed in a separate cell. It was not the case here in ward number 2. During the 1988 pro-democracy uprising, there were cases of killings, beheadings and wrongdoings by certain vengeful mobs. The alleged perpetrators, reportedly 108 in number, were arrested and sentenced to death. 
I remember writer Mantoka, ex-naval officer Major Bato, mentioning his intention to write a book about the dead war inmates. Then I was placed again in the special ward, formerly juvenile ward. Before the entrance to the ward stood a one-story house with three bedrooms, a dining room, a kitchen, and a bathroom. During my time in prison, the intelligence officials were utilizing this small house as an interrogation facility. In the courtyard, diagonally across from the house, one could see a tiny stupor about ten feet high. I somehow thought to myself that if this stupor were outside the prison, it would have been made taller and bigger. Straight across the yard from the stupor, there were two small newly built apartments, each housing three cells. Doctor Ankinsent, a prominent NLD member, medical doctor, and writer in sex education, would later be placed in one of these cells. Nearby, there were seven single detached houses, or rather huts. The first time I was held in special ward, former intelligence chief, ex-brigadier general Denu, better known as Eyeglasses Denu, not to be confused with the NLD co-founder U Denu, formerly known as General Dura Denu, and former Home Minister Ex Colonel Boni, were present in those huts. They were both released before the end of 1989. At a later stage, for varied periods, four of the seven huts would house rather solitarily confined in the four senior members of the NLD, all former military servicemen: Wu Denu, lawyer and formerly General Dura Denu, Wu Jimao, ex-colonel, Wu Chikai, ex-lieutenant colonel, and Wu Shui, ex-colonel, not to be confused with another NLD elder, Wu Anshui, ex-brigadier general and ex-ambassador. At the special ward. There was a notable foreign inmate, Captain Kim Ming Cho, a North Korean agent serving a life sentence for his role in the 9 October 1983 detonation of Rangoon's Martyrs Mausoleum, housing the tombs of our nine national heroes, including Dosu's father. A few days after the explosion, a group of villagers outside of Rangoon spotted and attempted to apprehend him. Resisting their capture, he pulled out a hand grenade, which blew up in his hand. Some villagers were injured, and Captain Kang lost his right forearm below the elbow down. By the time I was detained in the special ward, the North Korean assassin had already become a devout Buddhist. He also spent time teaching Taekwondo to some prison staff. I later learned that he died of some illness in 2008. During my second stint at the special ward. I was placed in a cell block comprising ten cells. Each cell was about twelve feet by fourteen feet. The presence of a water faucet, an earthen barrel, and a poor flush toilet inside the cell meant that the inmate was not expected to go outside for his or her sanitary needs. In front of the cell, there was a tiny concrete yard about five square feet. At the entrance, there was a wooden door hinged to a brick wall. Every time Aglazas Uteu, former intelligence chief, and Uboni, ex-home minister, were let out of their single detached heads to receive visitors, the prison guards would come and close our cell doors to prevent us from catching a glimpse of the two VIP inmates. I was placed in cell number one. Student leader Mingo Nine occupied cell number three, and cell number two was kept vacant. Separated by a cell between us, he and I had to talk to each other by yelling. Intelligence personnel eavesdropped on our daily conversations and reported to the higher ups. I intuitively knew that I would be held captive for a long time, and that I must take care of my physical and mental health. 
Indeed, I ended up having to stay in cell number one for about five years. Every morning and evening, I tried to get some exercise by walking back and forth inside my cell. Every day, I took 8,000 to 10,000 footsteps and did some push-ups, sit-ups, and squats. Three times a day, I meditated, and every Uposatha, the Buddhist Sabbath, I kept the eight precepts. At my request, the prison staff would let me know the dates of Uposatha. To cope with the solitary confinement, I try to always occupy my mind with something, meditation, chanting gathas and sutras, or keeping mindful of whatever I was doing. Sometimes at night, I try to recollect my English vocabulary, arranging words in alphabetical order. Creating my own concise dictionary in my head really helped me to fall asleep. Sometimes in the evening, whenever I was in the mood for a song, I sang aloud. If my jailmate Minkunai had not heard me sing for some nights, he would yell out to me, asking me to sing. He also knew a lot of songs, but often sang out of tune. As an Article 10A detainee, I started receiving a package from my family every two weeks. Minkunai too received packages from his family regularly. They usually contained food and other permitted items. The inmates usually exchanged food with each other. Bo Wu, as I familiarly addressed Mingo Nine by his birth name, and I started exchanging messages and notes by hiding them in food packets. You may wonder how we could write messages without any stationery available to us. We were not even allowed any reading materials, let alone pen and paper. As necessity is the mother of invention, we created some writing instruments. We did not discard the plastic bags in which we received food. We thoroughly washed the bags with soap and dried them. Then we ripped them along the folding crease. Voila! We got plastic sheets or our own version of paper. We somehow got our hands on any pointed tip like a nail or a screw, which we then used as a writing stylus or a make-do pen. In order to do readable, each written sheet had to be held up against the light. We folded a written sheet into a tiny piece, then wrapped it up with another plastic sheet and buried it in the food. We bagged the food and pleaded with the prison staff to take it to another cell. That was how Mingo Nai and I exchanged messages that we did not want the prison staff to hear. We might have written about 100, 100 plastic sheets, 100 plastic sheets each. After some time, they suspect something was going on but did not give us a hard time. I just said we weren't allowed any reading materials. In fact, we were made to read two books at one point. To us, they were known as the Red Book and the Green Book. The Red Book was the military region's propaganda against the so-called agents and underground network activities of the Communist Party of Burma, CPP. The Green Book was propaganda against the non-CPP forces behind the 1988 uprising with the names of prominent personalities and their alleged activities listed. The regime tried to circulate many copies of both books designed to misinform the public about the pro-democracy movement that obviously gained momentum in August 1988. There was an MI unit deployed inside the prison to monitor political prisoners, especially those in the special ward. The main functions of those agents were to interrogate us, solve problems if any, and gather as much information as possible. I spent the last half of 1989 in prison. We were now in the year 1990. In my opinion, staying in the special ward or any other wards made no difference to us. 
While the cells housing those convicted of real crimes were furnished with wooden flooring, we, the political prisoners, had to sleep on very cold concrete floors. The cold emitted from the concrete flooring was a slow and silent killer. I know someone who died in prison of ill health after six or seven years of having to sleep on a thin straw mat on a very cold concrete floor. The poor soul was Utenshui from the town of Monyua in Zagain Division. He was a writer, lawyer, and member of NLT group of intellectuals. He passed away in his solitary confinement in Insane Prison in 8 June 1997. Even if the cold floor did not kill you, it could still seriously damage your health. To insulate myself from the cold, I would fold my blanket into more layers to place it atop my straw mat. To curb any ill feelings that I might have harbored against our captors, I continued my spiritual routine, sending out my mitter to all beings, including those who had wronged us. During my time in the special ward, I did not have anyone to talk to except Mingo Nai. Now that we were in 1990, when we talked, or I should say, yelled to each other, it was mostly about the upcoming elections. The first ever multi-party elections since 1960 were scheduled for 27 May 1990. I told my jailmate that I considered the situation worrisome and foresaw problems because number one, most political dissidents were still in prison. Number two, a series of martial law conditions imposed since 1988 were still in effect. And number three, worst of all, the NLD party leaders Uteng Wu and Dosu were still in detention. About a week or so before the elections, Zagana and Ayang were brought into our special ward. Ayang, meaning the wild one, and Zagana, meaning tweezers, were arguably Burma's most popular comedians at the time. Tweezer is the stage name of Dr. Thura, a trained dentist but a practicing statist. His mother was a candidate for Yangon Township and campaigning for her election. While the two comedians were in attendance at one of her campaign events, the crowd demanded that they speak on stage. They obliged. There was a ridiculous campaign rule in effect that the agenda and all speakers of each event would have to be pre-approved by relevant authorities. No impromptu public talks were permitted, so the pair got arrested for speaking without prior approval. The wild one was placed in the cell between Mingo Nines and mine. Tweezers was placed in the cell next to that of Uke Maumin. At that time, I asked myself, if the military authorities are really serious about holding a free and fair election, why would they jail these two comedians? Every day, the comedy duo would entertain us by joking around or singing aloud, with a voice carrying far and wide. Tweezers would sing every night. He did not need a microphone to amplify his voice. The entire world could hear him. A prison guard would come in and to stop him from singing. They would then get into a heated argument that would become a nightly affair. First thing every day, I would shout "Good morning" to my neighbor, the wild one. He would shout back with all kinds of funny jokes. The two of them did not last long in the special ward. No, they were not released. They were just taken away from us and moved elsewhere within insane prison. Currently, Treaser is a film actor and director, and the wild one also is a film actor.